Okay, and hello, welcome to another Seacamp podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Haynes, and the pleasure is to have uh, Rob Moffat from Boulderton here with me. Rob, you just came in and did a talk for Academy to our founders, talking a lot about the VC's view on acquisition costs and thinking through your marketing channels. Maybe we could dive into your previous experience to see where that came from. So I guess, yeah, where I come from is, is a maths degree. So I did a master's in statistics, so I got some sort of data background. That's always been my bias. And I went off to Bain and did a bunch of analysis there and on sort of uh, marketing costs and every sort of element of a business. So I guess uh, that's where I've come from, that kind of very quantitative approach to things. They went to Google in 2007, then two and a half years at Google in the European strategy team, which I think was useful in terms of understanding the industry. I don't think Google is a particularly good company at marketing as a company, but obviously they're operating and they are the leading player in the online advertising space. And when I was there, it was a, a fascinating time where they were broadening from search into display and they bought DoubleClick. YouTube was starting to be monetized. So I think that really helped me understand the kind of the early days of ad exchanges and programmatic. So yeah. it was sort of an interesting experience on that yeah. side. And I think a lot of people when they when they first get into startups, they think think of marketing as, you know, the brand stuff, the fun stuff, telling people about what you're doing and your product. But marketing has become very quantitative, hasn't it? So yeah. your experience there must must help uh, think that through. Have you seen a big shift over the years, uh, your time at Bolton, or has mm. that always been the case for marketers? Uh, I think it has. I think there is a shift. Six years ago, I think a lot of our companies were very reliant on SEM, on Google AdWords. And I think there were, for a lot of them, that was their only channel. I think what you've seen over the last six years is that channel has become more and more expensive. And so companies are looking at other channels beyond. Obviously, mobile has exploded in that time period. And so there's different acquisition channels on mobile. TV is increasingly used by startups. Outdoor is increasingly used by startups. Going back to old-fashioned things like direct mail. And that makes it much harder to track. People want what they loved about SCM, which is that you can track every single click and be very clear on, it costs you 17p to acquire that visitor and then they convert it. And so it costs you 30 pounds to get a customer. And they want to take that quantitative approach and apply it to all their channels now, even TV. Yeah, and so let's let's kind of move on from Bain and Google and you joined Balderton in 2009. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can tell us a bit about how you got in from Google into VC yeah. and then what, what you've been doing at Balderton since then. So, so yeah, there's something that went around last week. There was the, uh, I think it was a Guy Kawasaki, which was the venture capital aptitude test. of <laughs> So what the characteristics you should have to go into venture capital in a, in a junior role. And I dismally failed on that. So I had no entrepreneurial experience. I hadn't worked with startups. I hadn't angel invested. I hadn't laid people off. Or certainly not for my own company. I had done plenty of that at Bain. So yeah, ter terrible background to be a VC. But somehow Balderton thought that it was a good background. I think they did the, I, I don't totally agree with that article. I think there's a lot. To be good at VC, you need to be able to take on a lot of information, process it, uh, and come up to a conclusion. I think that's a skill you build doing something like consulting, which you don't necessarily build by being a developer at a startup. And there's a bunch of sort of empathy and the soft side of it that you really have to play catch up on uh, if you haven't come from that background. So anyway, yeah, Google plus Bain for some reason was something that excited Borderton. Back then, it was a fairly rare combination, not anymore. And so I don't think I'd get a job these days. Um, I definitely need to have some startup experience. But um, convinced them that I knew something about startups uh, and that I had something to add with the Google angle and that was still a bit rare. So that yeah. was how I sort of squeezed myself in in 2009. And the reason I wanted to do it was I'd worked for one of the best companies in the world. 
and got frustrated by a big company, even one of the best big companies. And so really wanted to get into smaller companies. And my view was I'd work at Balderton for a year or two, find a great co-founder, work out what businesses I wanted to do and yeah. go off and start it. Right. Uh, and six years six on, years here later, I am. Yeah, you're still in there. And I mean, you've, I mean, Balderton has worked with a lot of great companies, you know, Betfair, MySQL, Love Film, Bebo. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a long, exhaustive list. Which companies have you been most involved in? I know you sit on a, a couple of boards as, mm-hmm. as an observer, so you will have seen a lot of the marketing talk that we're going to talk about in a minute during those board meetings. Yeah. So talk us through what, what type of companies have you worked so, with? So I guess when I first joined six years ago, I got involved in two businesses. One touched local, which was acquired last year by web.com, which was a local business advertising company. So quite learned a lot around the sort of local and small local businesses through Touch Local. And also a lot around when things don't go beautifully and you're not on this sort of wonderful growth path and how you sort of work through that and yeah. get to a decent exit. And the second one is Wooga, which is a mobile games developer in Berlin who I've learned a hell of a lot about. So everything I've learned about mobile advertising pretty much has been through Jan Machaika and the team at Wooga. So that, that's been a great experience. And then over the years built up another sort of six companies I work with I guess the most high profile is House Trip in London, uh, Vacation Rentals, mm-hmm. uh, Qubit, which is uh, website optimization and personalization software, SaaS. It's recently CarWow, board director, which is a way to buy new cars online. So revolutionizing the car buying process online. Yeah. Great. So, I mean, you must have seen a lot of different approaches, things that have worked, things that, that, that haven't worked. But you started off the talk by talking about two two kind of fundamental principles I think any founder listening to this podcast really needs to understand, even at the beginning of their journey. And that was CPA and LTV. Mm-hmm. You know, those uh, th- those letters are thrown around, but can you give us a brief introduction to them? So, I mean, what does CPA mean and what does mm-hmm. it mean to a VC? Okay, so CPA is cost per acquisition. Uh, and how I think of that is how much does it cost you to acquire a paying customer? So not a site visitor, not someone who signs up to a free plan, but someone who's a paying customer. And so the first part of my talk today was around breaking that down into, okay, understanding your cost per acquisition from the different marketing channels and how you really understand that and avoid getting uh, drawing the wrong conclusions. So the, the, the biggest mistake is to take your blended cost per acquisition. You take your marketing costs and divide it by the number of customers you acquire, and that's your cost per acquisition. It looks fine, but that can often conceal under the surface some paid channels which really aren't performing Mm -hmm. um, and some organic channels that are doing really well but you need to accelerate that's the cpa side and then the flip side is lifetime value well let's let's just just dwelling on the cpa so i mean companies when they come to you at um in a bulletin it's probably as they're approaching series a but before that i mean what should they what should they be doing how should they think through the cpa should they be running tests to try and like optimize for it or mm-hmm. what should you be doing in your head before series a yeah so i think before series a it's around testing right it's around finding what channel could work for you as a business it's, it's very hard to generalize b2b is a very different story to b2c mm. b2b is certainly much more about sales early on b2c is more about marketing i think the obvious place to start is SEO and SEM. Uh, that's, a, that's a great place for any business to start and to sort of get to a position where SEM can make sense for you is, is a nice place to be. It's a nice channel which scales well and it's easy to, to do. And then be testing other channels beyond that, direct mail or a bit of display advertising or um, yeah, whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, and one of the questions I get asked a lot by our startups is, you know, they might have maybe one channel that works very well, like they've really figured out, you know, Facebook advertising, who they're, who, who they're kind of trying to attract and they're really optimizing their CPA. But they say, we've gone out and seen this VC and he says, okay, or she says, 
what, what about your other channels? So what, what would be your advice? Should you be, okay, find one channel, double down on it? Mm. Or would it be, do you need two or three in reserve, you know, for when you're going out fundraising to, to prove that you're not dependent on that particular channel? So I think, yeah, if you're raising Series B, you need to have multiple channels. If mm-hmm. you, someone was raising Series B and the entire business depended on SEM, then I'd be worried. I think it's Series A, it's fair enough, right? That's, uh, uh, obviously, Series A and B are kind of very imperfect terms, but that kind of stage where yeah. you say you're trying to raise three or four million and you've raised one million before, um, then I think it's perfectly fine to have SEM driving a chunk of your traffic. And what I, it's always good to see is some organic coming through. There's some word of mouth. There's some sort of people just talking about yeah. your business. Cool. And then so we, you were about to come on to the flip side of that. And you referenced a post uh, by Bill Gurley where he, mm-hmm. he talks about LTV, but the dangerous seduction of LTV. So yeah. first of all, you know, for, for those listening, just explain what LTV is, how you think about that. And then maybe you can dive more into what this dangerous seduction is. Yeah. So LTV is lifetime value. So it's the value of a customer to your business over their lifetime so what you typically look at is what's the revenues you get from that customer subtract the variable costs of that customer and then you apply a churn rate of sort of how often you sort of lose those customers over time how long you expect them to stick around and that gives you a lifetime value so say the customer I don't know customer spends 10 pounds in year one and then half of them leave after year one half of them stay so that's another five pounds and then it carries on that gets you to a lifetime value of 20 pounds what's dangerous about it one thing is people extrapolate it for far too long so I think anything be year one be anything beyond year one for a startup is fantasy so sort of relying on a seven-year lifetime value is is very ambitious I think the second challenge of it is one of the big components is churn And it's very hard to have a good idea of what your churn rate is as a company when you have very small data sets to base that on. And you're at the early days of of kind of really understanding how long people stay with your product, particularly for something that's a subscription or where people are doing transacting often. And I think the third third challenge is, is, is easy to look at lifetime value and say, okay, we can increase this. We'll increase price by 20% and we'll decrease churn by 10% and then our lifetime value will increase by 30%. Mm-hmm. And actually it doesn't work because increasing price has a negative impact on churn. And so it's very, it sort of cross affects people who uh, tend to, tend to uh, lose. Yeah. And I guess with, with LTV, again, you know, some of the questions that I have around it from uh, from the founders, and you've kind of touched a bit upon this. I mean, it's quite difficult to measure, especially when you're in your early phases. Again, if you're more when, when a, a company comes to you, Series A, they probably have a year or two's worth of data. But when you're in those very early phases and you're thinking through channels, you're thinking through those CPAs, but how, what's your advice to companies on how they should be thinking about their LTV before they really have the, the customer data to actually extrapolate and prove what it is? So I think it depends what kind of business you run. I think there's a, a large number of businesses where they're not very high repeat uh, and you just shouldn't you shouldn't sort of put any credence on that LTV. Mm-hmm. You should focus yeah. on your first purchase. Yeah, so car wow, like car, car wow is a good example yeah. of that, right? You're buying a new car. That's not something you do very often. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you need to make the economics work on that first purchase. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who is a subscription service, so you're, I don't know, a HelloFresh or a Pack Coffee or someone like that, then you do need to make some assumptions. Mm-hmm. And I think you, I, the best, it's better then to sort of take rough benchmarks from the industry and look at that rather than try and draw too much conclusion from your first 20 customers. Mm-hmm. And just say, yeah. okay, a sensible thing for subscription food is three months. 
and let's make it work on that basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I guess the last thing that I wanted to touch on um, was you spent a bit of time and you've also written some great blog posts on your on your Medium channel, which you can plug later mm -hmm. on. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot of startups now doing much more above the line advertising. So I mm -hmm. think everyone's had the experience. You get on the tube after work and, you know, you see an advert for Moo, you see an advert for Nutmeg, you mm -hmm. see an advert for TransferWise. A lot of those um, companies are now considering above the line, whereas you know, five, six years ago, it's very unfashionable. If you went to a VC and said, you know, I want to spend a million mm -hmm. pounds on TV advertising, they would you'd probably laugh you out of the office. But yeah, what, what's been your experience of that? Was that the case five or six years ago? Was it frowned on? And why has that changed? So what's changed? I think there were obviously companies doing TV advertising five, six years ago. Love Film, mm -hmm. right? One of our early yeah, investments there and did extremely well off TV. It was yeah. a fantastic channel for them. But it tended to be something you did at a later stage mm -hmm. because it was expensive to buy. It was hard to measure. And so you couldn't do it unless you had five million or more to throw at it. You sort of flip that around now. It's much easier to measure TV with sort of software like TV Squared. You can buy much more long tail TV. Um, you can buy the long tail of digital channels. Uh, you can buy from Sky and track individual sort of regions of the country. Um, so you can, and similar things happening in other countries across Europe. So you can do much smaller scale TV campaigns. There's a famous example of uh, Lost My Name, Google invested in earlier this year. And they wrote a blog post around how they managed to test TV for a quarter of a million pounds. So firstly, you can you can spend less money on TV uh, and still see if it makes sense. Secondly, Google AdWords is getting more and more expensive and people are desperate to find channels outside. Yeah. Thirdly, you've got some great success stories of people using TV. Trivago uh, is a sort of most famous German hotel meta search company that came from nowhere in a really crowded category through great direct response TV. Yeah. We buy any car as a UK example. And yeah, and I think the more sort of success stories there are, the more startups are sort of keen to go after yeah. this. And, and, and finally, I think there is more capital around now and it's looser than it was in 2009, which yeah. was probably a bit of a sort of bad year to try and raise VC funding. Yeah, and in your academy talk, you, you showed a slide where you'd actually surveyed the, your companies to think through which channels they have been using. What, yeah. what was the like can you give us a we haven't got the slide on the, the podcast unfortunately but can yeah. you talk us through you know what were some of the results of that and what things caught you by surprise what was firstly surprising was actually there wasn't huge uses of some of these channels so only a third of the companies had even looked at TV or, or were planning to look in the next year so yeah be aware that actually there's, it's not like everyone is doing this yeah. I think some companies have been quite cautious about it yeah. those who had tried TV the majority were actually quite positive about it contrast with print advertising where actually more people have looked at print than TV and they've done tests in trade magazines or, or in the national press or sort of the Telegraph online uh, and majority have been disappointed with that just didn't see it driving any meaningful uh, increase in conversions and the other one we discussed a bit uh, during the session was around display advertising and how frustrating that is for a lot of people because it should make sense it should all be trackable there should be lots of inventory it's quite inexpensive mm -hmm. but I think that is an industry which is struggling because of the complexity that's come in because of the lack of transparency because 50% or 60% of what you spend on display advertising gets lost along the way to the different agencies and technology platforms and exchanges yeah. but it's sort of actually it's hard to drive results on it particularly if you have a small budget 
Yeah. And then so coming to the, the, the final thing, I'm just recalling another slide that you had, which was thinking through the kind of marketing analytics stack that your portfolio uh, companies were using. And I know you have Qubit, which is mm -hmm. included in that. Well, what did you find? What, what tools should people be using? Is Google Analytics enough? At what point do you need to bring other additional tools into the equation? Yeah. So I think, yeah, the, the best place to start is Google Analytics. Um, I think investing real time to set that well. And then having obviously your in-house database uh, and making sure you have a sort of version of that you can easily query and pull your BI out of. I think using some form of A-B testing tool probably makes sense uh, and Optimizely is the obvious choice to make when you're starting out um, just because it's easy to set up and get going and it's a good piece of software. And then as you build and become more sophisticated, you can look at uh, an SEM bidding tool such as Marin or Kenshu. You can look at TV analytics with something like TV squared you can get into more sophisticated attribution modeling and then when you sort of start to reach that scale that's when qubit or similar software really starts to make sense the whole idea of qubit is there's one indisputable source of data uh, and it measures every single movement that anyone makes around your site and links back to the marketing channels so you can have one clear view on marketing and attribution which i think is a real challenge a lot of businesses you see today and they have different databases uh, for crm for acquisition none of them match up and they can't trust any of their data yeah, yeah. cool and so final thoughts or a final piece of wisdom to the founders so companies who might have you know they've they've gone out there they've got started to get some customers they've raised seed funding they're starting to think about approach someone like Balderton for funding mm -hmm. what questions are you going to ask about you know where, where are you going to drill in on these questions of CPA and LTV and and what kind of thing I mean it's it's a, a very wide question but what kind of things are you going to expect the founder to have come prepared with so I think something which I didn't cover today but I think the most important thing is be very clear what your proposition is what is your proposition to your customers in sort of plain English what is your proposition to your customers and then how do you translate that into a marketing message? Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing and it's very hard to get right. On the metric side, I think this idea of understanding your CPA by channel, what's your paid CPA for new customers? And does that make sense? Or if not, then you're gonna to have to go through organic channels and that's gonna be much harder. So making sure you have some sort of paid channel that works for you, that's very important. And fantastic, you've got virality, a real virality in your business, that's amazing. It's very rare, but it's amazing. So that's, then you need to, don't need to worry about any of this, then people yeah. will be throwing themselves at you. Yeah, great. And if, if you could uh, generalize the numbers here, but you know, for every hundred founders that you might see, um, you know, how many of them do you feel are well prepared enough on these topics to, to have that conversation with a potential new investor? It actually varies a lot by city. So I spend a lot of time in London and Berlin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Berlin, anyone who's sort of touched rocket internet at some point will be extremely well prepared. Right. Right? They'll have all the analysis on this. And where they sometimes weaker is on the brand and proposition side. London is really mixed. And I'd say maybe, maybe a quarter to a third of kind of founders who right. are sort of actually have a really clear view on this yeah maybe maybe more these days actually. i think it is increasing right but yeah. uh, it's still not as high as it should be yeah cool well it sounds like there's uh, more that we can do to educate the founders on these topics so uh, what i end uh, is traditional the seat camp podcast to end with um, a shameless plug uh, first of all i would love you to plug your uh, medium blog post because that's where you write about a lot of these topics but yeah. maybe if there's something else you want to plug that's uh, not work related uh, like a charity you're involved in or a project you you want to see happen um, yeah now's the time Wow. Okay. So the best way to find me is uh, Rob Moff, R-O-B-M-O-F-F. -F. Um, so at Rob Moff on Twitter, at Rob Moff on Medium. So that's, that's the best way to sort of follow what I'm doing. Those yeah. are two platforms I'm active. Something to plug. 
So and the, the big thing relevant right now is um, the EU view on net neutrality. So the EU is sort of sleepwalking into this disastrous piece of legislation which removes net neutrality to the ability to sort of stream every sort of bit of internet data in the same way. And I think that is be a terrible decision. So there's a bunch of, if you Google that, there's a, there's a lot of activity going on to sort of lobby politicians that we don't sleepwalk into this crap legislation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. get out there and do it. Yeah, great. Excellent. I think, yeah, something that's definitely worth drawing people's attention to. So thank you, Rob, uh, for coming in. I know the founders you know, had a great reception from the Academy class as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers.